0: Welcome back to the Public Problems Podcast. My name is Justin Bullock, and I'm your host. This will be our last episode for Season 1 of the podcast. Um, We wrap up with Nathan Favaro uh, on a discussion of higher education and performance funding. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you'll check it out. this is the last episode for the season and so before we get there I would like to tell you a couple of pieces of information. The first is that season two will begin in February. We'll pick back up. Season two will be eight to ten episodes as well and season two is going to be a look a little bit different than season one so I hope you enjoy the changes. That gives us about a six week break in between seasons. In the meantime during January we will be hosting a virtual classroom experience. We're calling it Public Problems 101. It'll be a five week seminar on Wednesdays in January. If you're interested in this course, registration is available through the Facebook page, the Public Problems Podcast Facebook page. um, And the links will also be available on SoundCloud and iTunes and YouTube and the other mediums that we use with this episode. So I hope you'll register for that course. Those that register by December 15th get to vote on which topics they would like to be part of this course. And those that register between December 15th and the course beginning uh, will not have that opportunity, unfortunately, but will still be able to take part in the class if you're interested. Thanks again for following along this season. It's been a real pleasure on my end to get to talk with all these interesting people and share their research and knowledge with you. Um, And without any further delay, Here's my conversation with Nathan Favera. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Today I'm chatting with Nathan Favera. We'll be talking about higher education issues, including issues of performance and issues of funding. Uh, Nathan's done a good bit of work on these topics. Um, Nathan is an assistant professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy within the School of Public Affairs at American University. Uh, His research interests include public administration and management, race and ethnicity, quantitative methodology, education policy, and theories of cooperation and policymaking. Also, as I like to give in full disclosure, Nathan is a, a close personal friend. We came up through our PhD programs together in the same field and um, across institutions that had some communication. So we got to know one another while we were in our PhD program. And both of our, one of our first uh, early cited papers, uh, one of our early published papers was together. Um, So that was a lot of fun as well. So thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me today, Nathan. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd like maybe for you to tell us a little bit about your interest in higher education, and then how you settled on the issues of performance and funding as something you wanted to spend some time on, and then um, I'd like to maybe, if you could, give us a like a thousand foot view of higher education in the U.S. context and some of the major performance and funding issues associated with it, um, and then maybe we can move to talk a little bit specifically about your 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 specific work and your op-ed. And um, then I know that the reauthorization for the Higher Education Act is in Congress at this moment. Um, so maybe we can talk about what your work and what our conversation means for that discussion. How does all that sound as kind of a broad layout? That sounds great. Cool. So let's just start with, you know, um, what what got you interested in higher education? You have lots of topics there. And so what, what about higher education uh, attracted your attention? Sure. Well, I guess um,
1: one obvious thing is that I work in higher education, um, but uh, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand um, sort of social equity issues in society and understanding how to improve people's standards of living and those kinds of things, um, as well as producing good knowledge in society. Um, and all of those things are intimately related to higher education because higher education often is the gateway for a lot of students into high-paying jobs um, and into sort of um, even accumulating sort of social capital yeah, sure. to be able to, to go on and, and uh, increase their, their standard of living or attain a higher socioeconomic status. Um, and so it's really important for equity issues. We see a lot of equity issues playing out within the context of higher education. Um, and it, it matters too when we think about trying to produce, a stronger economy. Um, higher education is where we have a lot of knowledge being accumulated, um, particularly types of knowledge that markets might not normally naturally create because there might not be um, a strong profit incentive to create certain types of knowledge. Um, and so, education or, or institutions of higher education are a place where that happens. Um, mm-hmm. Which is uh, the the other piece of this that I find really fascinating is that universities and colleges. Oftentimes they're trying to serve two purposes at the same time. They're trying to produce knowledge and they're trying to share it, um, with, with people. Um, and you know, the same individual isn't necessarily always gifted as in both. We've had some conversations about (laughs) this in the past. Um, and so there, there can be a tension between those two goals.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the goals of universities before we move on. You mentioned that they serve at least two purposes often, and those purposes are often contradictory. So for people who aren't familiar with higher education, what you mean by that is that universities serve the role of doing uh, academic research, peer-reviewed studies, advancing knowledge, and they also serve the purpose of educating students and passing that knowledge on to the next generation. And as we're going to talk about, I think, when we talk about performance issues and then tying funding to performance, how you measure those things and how you think about those things is going to create some issues is my guess. Is, I mean, is that kind of where we're going to be headed at some point?
1: Yeah. I mean, success in both of those areas is difficult to measure. Sure. Um, and I think that the bulk of, of policies that we're going to talk about has focused mostly on the educating students piece of it rather than the, the producing research piece of it, um, but you've seen some attempts to, to get at both of them. Um, and one of the reasons I think that, and, and perhaps a good reason to focus more attention on that educating students piece of it, is that every institution of higher education has a strong focus on educating students. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all colleges and universities have a strong focus on producing original peer-reviewed research or original research in, in other forms. So
0: that's going to um, vary by that, the type of institution, is that correct?
1: Exactly. And a lot of the institutions the policymakers went to um, and that sort of uh, researchers, academics went to, right, and at least got their degrees, usually are going to have some focus on, on producing academic research. So, um, but that is not the typical college. The typical yeah. college in the U.S. is sort of, you know, a regional university, maybe, or a community college. And that's where the, the bulk of students are going, are to those kinds of places that are much more focused on the educational mission and less on the research mission.
0: So one thing that sounds like that will be important for people to people to keep in mind as we think about higher education, it's sort of like thinking about business or government in the sense that not all of the higher education institutions are identical. Some are larger, some are smaller, some serve multiple purposes like research one universities like the universities you and I work at. And to your point, not all universities are as focused on research. Some of them mostly serve the mission of educating and so not all, when we say higher education, I'm doing air quotes as we're saying this, it's not all the same type of entities. They're not all University of Georgia or Texas a and University, even though, or even American, if you, given that those are ones you hear about. There's a lot more in terms of number of institutions who are focusing pretty exclusively on educating. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and one of the, the concerns is that so much of the attention in media gets placed on sort of the el- most elite higher education institutions, particularly the Ivy Leagues um, and, and some of the really elite colleges. Um, but there's a huge amount of variety in higher education. And just to add one more dimension to all of the dimensions that you <laughs> added, the public versus private, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah at a, right. a private university. So the way we get our funding is even radically different um, depending on the type of institution we're at.
0: Yeah, so um, listeners are probably getting an idea of the complexity of higher education in terms of the different types of organizations and how they might have different types of incentives and different types of funding. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about those things, but you mentioned one other thing in kind of your interest in higher education that I wanted to touch on just briefly, which was the, the notion of equity. And so I think as part of this conversation, um, we'll be – being relatively explicit about some values that we think are important. I think there are things that you and I agree on, on this. Um, And, but you made the claim that um, something along the lines of education, helping with issues of equity and serving as gatekeepers to access. Can you tell me just a little bit more about what that, what you say that has equity concerns? Just tell me just a little bit more about that, if you don't mind.
1: Sure, sure. So education generally, we know, is one of the strongest predictors um, and one of the strong causes of people's ability to go on and get high-paying and prestigious jobs. Um, and so uh, education at all levels is is important um, for equity. And in particular, what we've seen historically a lot of times is that the least advantaged um, groups, parts of society... Have the least access to the educational opportunities that are needed in order to be able to go on and get high paying and high status jobs. Um, and so higher education plays a part in that, in that to the extent that it reinforces inequality, that sort of um, individuals who come from families who um, have been successful on various dimensions are the ones that then go to the most prestigious universities sure. um, and then are able to go and get the most prestigious jobs, um, you can see that, that there can be sort of this, this vicious cycle. So one of the goals of a lot of policymakers um, and, and people who think about higher education, who care about equity, is trying to expand access, um, make it so that a broader... Range of students who traditionally might not have had great educational opportunities open up opportunities to them to be able to have access to a high quality education um, up through 12th grade, but also post past 12th grade, which is um, sort of what um, I'm focusing on in these projects.
0: And so the general idea is that there are disparities um in income across society disparities and access to good quality jobs and that one of the th- one of the big drivers in opening up access and opportunity for those types of jobs is education and one you know might also posit that education does other things which we're not going to focus on today but helps people think critically helps people think introspectively helps people reflect on their decisions so we're going to focus mostly I think on the you know the the financial benefits but that has all these secondary and tertiary effects as well isn't that correct
1: Yeah and and that's actually one of the tensions that comes out in in education including in the K through 12 arena but also in higher education is what should the only purpose of especially government-funded education be to prepare people for the labor force, or should it also focus on creating better citizens, for example? Um, and so, yeah, we'll we'll probably, I think, in this discussion, mostly focus on that, preparing people for the labor force type um, of, of goals, because that's, I think, almost all of us agree that that's one of the important goals, even though we might add other ones as well.
0: Sure. So I think that's a, and we should put that... Uh, discussion aside, because sometime you and I should have the discussion about what the purposes of higher education uh, institutions should be and see what we come up with, because that would be fun. But for today's purposes, let's focus on uh, what's going on with higher education and uh, defining some basic terms for the audience. So your papers focus on what you call, or not what you call, but what uh, policy folks call uh, call performance funding. And I was hoping you could give me a little bit of a, like a thousand foot view of how higher education works in the U.S. We've talked a little bit about it. It varies by size. Some of it's publicly funded. Some of it's privately funded. Some have research missions. Some don't. So I think those are some of the basic parameters. But let's move, uh, let me know if we've missed any big pieces there. And also, I want to talk about this performance funding thing and what you mean by performance and what you mean by funding when we talk about these things so tell me a little bit about uh, about those topics
1: or sure concepts. yeah so um, well let's let's start with with sort of the, the basic underlying logic of this um, so especially if we're talking about public institutions and that's mostly where these performance... Um, based funding policies that we'll I'll define in a moment have been used is with public institutions, they're receiving taxpayer dollars in part. Um, a lot of them get most of their revenue from tuition still, um, but they are getting some taxpayer dollars in order to help um, the, the college or university uh, operate. Um, and so when you have government dollars going to support These institutions, a lot of people worry about whether or not those resources are being used well, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're being used efficiently, whether or not there's accountability for those taxpayer dollars that are going to colleges and universities. Um, And so one of the ways that you can try to hold a public organization accountable is to measure their performance and then try to give them incentives to perform well. Um, So in this context, we might think about um, the purpose of a university is to is to educate people, and one measure of whether or not they're succeeding at that is to see whether or not the students that enroll in the, the college or university end up completing their degrees.
0: Okay.
1: Right. We're, we have we have this big concern um, where a lot of people go to college for a semester, a couple semesters, they rack up some um, some debt, maybe some student debt. Um, And then they never finish their degree, which means that it doesn't necessarily open up those better employment opportunities that we might expect if they've completed the degree. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds for the student, right? They have some student debt now, but they don't have the higher income that would help them pay off that debt because they never completed their degree.
0: So the basic Um, idea of thinking about why we care about the performance of public universities in particular, which is what we're going to talk about, those that are – you know, the major state universities or major regional universities that are publicly funded. One thing citizens should care about is how public dollars are spent. And since public dollars are going towards that education, we want to hold those organizations accountable to doing with the public dollars what they're supposed to. And so one, uh, on its face, easy way to do that, or one straightforward way to do that is to think about measuring performance of uh, higher education organizations and we might think about one way that you've initially suggested here of measuring that is percentage of uh, students who complete a degree or some some number related to degree completion because it's certainly students who start college and then don't finish um, often can be worse off than if they had never started because they end up with so much debt and didn't get a lot of information along the way. Is that, is that kind of the broad parameters you're laying out?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And so um, if if the purpose of these taxpayer dollars is to help get people the education they need yeah, to succeed sure, yeah. economically, if that's one of the purposes, um, then uh, taxpayers rightly want to be able to hold the institutions accountable to that, right? They mm-hmm. want to be able to say, are you actually doing that or are you just enrolling people and then leaving them, you know, on the side of the road after a semester or two. Um, so so there's this concern about how can we hold these institutions accountability and one of the ways that we would try to do that is through measuring performance or measuring whether or not they're actually accomplishing the goals that we want them to accomplish.
0: And so tell me a little bit more about performance and what types of measures have society or legislatures or policy folks agreed upon as because uh, I imagine part of this is we want quantifiable measures, things we can assign numbers to. And mm-hmm. so, what what numbers have they been used? We mentioned some sort of graduation rate. Are there others that have become pretty mainstream, or is it just a focus on that one? What's the current state of affairs there?
1: Well, the the sky is kind of the limit here. <laughs> um, one of the things that doesn't about... sound good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it's good and it's bad, right? <laughs> so um, one of the things about a lot of education policy is that most of it is not set at the federal level. Most of it is set at the state level, or perhaps even the local level. Um, and in the context of higher education, most of these policies are being set at the at the state level. Okay. And so there's huge variance in terms of the measures that, that, that states are using. Um, and, and I'm not intimately familiar with with all of the the different approaches that have been taken, but some other examples. A lot of them are based on on degrees, but they've some of them have done things like try to give you a premium if you get um, uh, if you give a degree to a certain underrepresented group, right? So you mm-hmm. get more credit for graduating a student who's a member of a racial minority or who's a low-income student, or something like that, or maybe a f- first-generation student Then you get for get graduating um, a, a student who doesn't fall into one of those underrepresented categories. Um, so some I- of them... Oh, oh,
0: yeah. So The idea is that you would get extra funding, extra money, if you're really focusing on the equity issue, the equity issue being trying to get students to graduate who would not have had access to the same type of opportunities without that and have historically – have come from families that historically don't have those opportunities. And so they get like bonus points for contributing to the overall equity mission. Is that right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And then there are measures that are related to research. Um, There are measures that are related to uh, what we call throughputs rather than outputs, um, that there's been a recent push to focus more on those kinds of things. So those aren't necessarily the final goal that we care about, right? We think about the degree maybe as being the, the final sort of piece. They're, they're measuring things along the way that might help you to get to that degree. So um, maybe something like the, the first year retention rate, so how many freshman students come back for their sophomore year, um, or certain um, approaches to help Students stay there, um, so maybe things like investing in counseling services that might help students make um, good decisions, or um, things like offering gateway courses or, or something like that. Um, there, there are a number of, of different approaches that have been used.
0: So, um, and just uh, I want to come back to the measurement issue because I, I imagine it's going to come up, but I, I want to get to funding as well. But are most of these? Met performance measures so things we're using to measure performance when when the states are thinking about doing this do they end up focusing on one like one measure or two measures it seems to me that there's a lot of things here that you might would want to take you know 10 things into an account give them each some type of weight or some type of importance and then that way you're capturing the multi we'll say multi-dimensional all the different aspects of higher education or do they end up kind of coming down on what you might call a global measure like a one measure that they really focus on because I know you mentioned a couple different things they might be focusing on do they usually just pick one and say hey we're going to live and die by this measure I mean how is that playing out in what you've looked at
1: yeah a lot of states are are using multiple measures, um, several measures, and I, th- I think that's the predominant approach that states have taken. Um, I don't think most of the time they just sort of hang their hat on one measure, at least these days. Earlier policies may have done that more. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but the current policies tend to be pretty complex and use lots of measures.
0: Good. Well, that's, that's a little reassuring, at least in the setting up of this uh, policy. So let's talk about the funding piece. It seems to me that this is – important. And what I'm curious about is the kind of old kind of carrot and stick approach here. And so it seems to me that some type of performance measures, if you were trying to use some type of carrot, some type of bonus, or some type of additional funding, if they achieve some goal on its face, seems pretty logical and rational use of incentives from what I can think of, although I'm sure we'll discuss problems with that. But the other piece is Um, And this come up, I think, in the K through 12 debate on funding is, are they using the funding to kind of punish uh, schools that don't meet those ambitious goals? And so I guess just give me a lay of the land of how does what is the structure of the funding and is it used to to punish schools or just to encourage positive behavior? I know they're starting to get in some one of your papers. So tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, there's there's a term I've already used a couple times, performance-based funding. Okay. Um, there are several different terms that sometimes get used to refer to this idea, and that's sort of the term that I tend to use, performance-based funding. That means that at least some of the funding, you have a policy as a state, that at least some of the funding that public institutions receive is going to be based on their performance. And it's that idea of providing some sort of carrot, right? Mm-hmm. If you perform better on these metrics, then we are going to give you more dollars for your institution. Uh If you're graduating more students, sort of prioritizing the students' needs, doing whatever it takes to make it so that more of those students who enroll in the university initially actually end up getting walking away with that degree that's going to be useful, we're going to give you more dollars. So that's the basic idea of performance funding policies. Now, not every state uses these, but these days the majority of states do use them. And these performance-based funding policies started with a couple states experimenting with them sort of in the 70s and 80s, um, and then they really started to take off in the 90s. You saw lots of states adopting some sort of performance-based funding policy. Um, And then since the financial crisis, um, you've seen a lot of state budgets sort of being Pushed states want to give more dollar, more bang for their buck, more more um, performance out of their dollars, and so they a lot of them have turned to these performance based funding policies recently. To where now the majority of states have some sort of performance based funding
0: policy. And do you have a sense of? And I know it changes in every state, and so maybe in a particular state that you're familiar with, but what percentage of the budget are we talking here? Right? I mean, is this if it's a one percent? It's hard for me to imagine it's making a huge impact one way or the other, maybe some incentives around the, on the sides, uh, on the edges of it. But is it 20%? I mean, how how uh, big of a carrot is this?
1: Yeah, so um, my co-author could probably answer that a little bit better than I could. But that measuring that actually gets pretty complicated because um, one of the, the questions you have to ask is sort of what is the – what is the range of performance that you actually observe, right? Mm -hmm. And so in theory, maybe someone's funding could go down a whole lot, but it might be that no institution actually performs low enough um, that 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 much of their their funding zeroes out. But what I I will say is that the concern about it being a very small portion is something that a lot of recent policies have tried to address. So originally, most of the early um, performance-based funding policies sort of just gave bonuses, to schools that were performing really well on these metrics. Um, And there's this more recent push for performance-based funding. One of the things that's been talked about is people have used the term performance funding 1.0 and 2.0. And 2.0 refers to some of the new performance funding policies. Um, And there are a couple of things that make them distinctive. But one of the pieces that makes them distinctive is that they tend to focus more on making it so that some of the actual base allocation of funds to universities is based on performance. So it might not be all of it, but at least a portion of that base allocation is based on their performance as opposed to the 1.0 policies, which tend to, to just give, you know, sort of small bonuses to, to, to universities that were performing well.
0: Okay. So, um, let me think about what's next, what's best to come next. Um,
1: well, can I add one one thing, real yeah, quick? Yeah, please go ahead. Um, so, the the idea of, of measuring performance, um, I, I I think m- most of us agree that it would be it, it's important to have some data, right? Mm-hmm. And if we if we draw a parallel to the K through twelve universe, which I think we're a little bit more used to thinking about, um, I think it it might help us to clarify some things. So um, in in K through 12, the dominant way that we measure performance is through standardized exams Mm -hmm. um, that we're all familiar with at this point. Uh, But in in higher education, that's not the approach we use, partially because people are studying so many different topics, right? We really start to specialize most of the time in in higher education. Um, so instead of standardized exams, we're using these other measures, like like graduation rates and things like that. Um, but in k through twelve education, for the most part, we've decided not to use um, these strong performance based funding mechanisms. There's been some discussion about doing it at the individual level for teachers. Um, and there are some school systems that are that are doing that where they'll they'll pay bonuses to individual teachers if their students do well on standardized exams. But for the most part we have decided that we're not going to say this district gets more money and this one gets less because the one is doing better on the standardized exams than the others. Um, but in higher education um, there there is a strong move and a lot of policies that are that are saying we think that one of the only, one of the best ways or, or one of the one of the ways that makes sense to hold these institutions accountable is not just to measure their performance publish it try to shame them into doing a good job but to actually attach dollars to how they perform on those metrics um, so that's that's not the only way that one could try to do accountability um, but sure. but many many states believe that an effective way to to create this accountability is to attach dollars to how they end up performing on those metrics in higher education.
0: That uh, that helped um, in the sense that um, it, it reminded me of my question about performance, which was I know, and maybe it's a good place to transition to one of your concerns about performance-based funding. You have a um, op-ed in the Huffington Post. And one thing you mention in there, the title of it, is the danger of, quote, one-size-funds-all, end-quote, policies. Um, and in there, you talk about the, the challenges with having a one type of way of measuring performance-based funding for all types of universities. And so I guess the question I had was, In general, are these policies some absolute standard? Like, hey, um, Texas A&M University, um, if you get 90% of your students to graduate in five years, you met our metric, like an absolute level, or is it like a growth model, right? Is it, hey, last year we were at 85, and if you show 2% growth over three years, you get this additional funding, um, and I think in the in the op-ed you're making the argument that what's much more common is the the threshold amount of absolute level of say ninety percent uh, graduation rate, and you suggest that maybe a growth model would be better. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So um, for the most part, it is sort of the the we're looking at absolute levels of performance um, in 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 these policies, but it isn't necessarily the same standard that's being applied to every university or every college. So for example, there might be a different threshold to receive a bonus or something like that for college for community colleges versus four-year institutions or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So we might say, okay, if you get a, you know, at least 70% of people graduating within six years of starting their degree. Um, we're going to give you this amount of funding um, per student or something like that at, at the, the, the four-year, if you're a four-year university. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a community college, we're not talking about six-year graduation rates because people are trying to get associate's degrees, right? Yeah. So we're going to have different measures um, and different thresholds that we set up for them than we have for, for four-year universities. But within that sort of category of the same type of institution, um, they generally are going to have these sort of absolute levels. And it's not gonna be based on improvement compared to last year. That's not gonna get you a reward. Um, it's, it's, they're going to be giving funding for the most part based on absolute levels of performance. So if you get 50% graduation rate, you're going to get more funding probably than if you get 45% graduation rate, um, regardless of what your performance was last year.
0: Okay. There seems to be some issues with that. Um, you, you mentioned the, uh, the metaphor of a marathon in your op-ed and you talk about how having the same standard, uh, across people at different that start with different abilities, different levels of resources, different levels of access to things. and then holding them to some uh, to act as if they're going to all have the same opportunity to get to the finish line at the same moment is, um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <coughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. That's why I use the metaphor. So tell me a little bit about how that metaphor works when thinking about funding. Because I imagine someone would say something like, so I would suggest that the one-size-fits-all with you seems to punish schools that were already uh, not performing great rather than trying to find a way to help them perform better, right? So one critique of that, someone I think would say, well, if those schools aren't doing a good job, they should close and those schools should go those students should go somewhere else. Why is it important to think about, hey, this school is in a different place than this other school so we can help them improve and why that is better than just shutting them down since they don't meet some threshold. Explain that to me.
1: Sure, sure. So, um I I think the one really key piece of this to understand is that different colleges are serving different students, right? So if one college has a graduation rate of 60% and another college has a graduation of 40%, we might be tempted to say that the college with 60% is doing a better job. But it might be that they just are bringing in students who are more prepared at the outset, right? We know that there is huge variation in the terms of quality of K through 12 education systems, right? So, a a college that's located in a county that has really strong K through 12 um, schools is almost certainly going to have an easier time um, getting its students to graduate than another college located in a county where um, the K through 12 education system is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's underperforming and students come into college unprepared to take freshman level courses. And so um, some of this variation on these performance metrics, I would say a lot of this variation, actually has more to do with the level of preparation that students have coming into the college rather than um, merely reflecting what the college is doing with those students once they get there. Um, and in, in thinking about this, it's important to remember going back to a point I made earlier, that the typical college is one that you've never heard of and that I've never heard of, right? It's not a big name college. Um, If if we were to just think about Texas A&M and University of Texas competing with one another for funds, those are both getting lots of really talented applicants from great schools all across Texas um, and even across the country. And so it might, they might be on a relatively level playing field, and if one of them has a better graduation rate, that might be a good indication that that college is doing a, a better job or that university is doing a better job. But most, most colleges are primarily serving students who grew up and came out of the K-12 through education system in that part of the state. Um, And so they're not necessarily going out and recruiting students from all across the state. They're mostly recruiting local residents. um, and, And some areas have local residents who are much more prepared for college than other areas.
0: So it sounds like a lot of this then is paying attention to the fact that states are different than one another. As we know, the politics of California and Texas, for example, to use two cliche examples, is very different. And since those states are in control of designing their education systems, you might imagine that they have different types of educational outcomes across states, which we know to be true. There are rankings and good measures of, or relatively good measures of performance of uh, K through 12, at least some measures that we can compare. And so... I think an analogy that might be useful is for one that people are more comfortable with is thinking about elementary schools doing the same thing with students, right? If you are in a neighborhood where the uh, four-year-olds spend a lot of time having uh, uh, access to pre-K, having access to education-themed daycare, having access to to parents with high education that have time to spend with them – and the resources to develop in them from zero to say five or four versus a community that doesn't have access to those things. It seems pretty clear that the students entering into that school system would be better or less prepared based on their training up to that point. And it also seems to make sense that those communities would also have students who are not only starting at a different level, but also have the communities themselves probably have different access of resources. And so you can imagine that this sort of disparity from age four or five just continues on through elementary, middle school, and high school all the way up to the type of students that a kind of regional community college would have are probably less prepared for some of the rigors of higher education than students who end up um, in highly competitive schools, for example. So so the types of students that they're serving, what I hear you saying is just not the same. They're, they're different types of institutions that are serving highly competitive applications versus uh, more general acceptance that are just trying to give some education or information to those students even if they uh, weren't able to get into the highly competitive schools. I mean, is that sort of the recap?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and to, to just... It, uh, extend that a little bit further, um, sort of what these policies in effect end up doing, um, I would argue a lot of times, and, and there's, we should, we'll, we'll put some caveats on this in a moment, um, but what these, these policies end up doing is they say to the school that got the, the 80% graduation rate or the 65% graduation rate, let's, let's say that, that might be a little bit more realistic, we, they say to the school that got the, 80, the 65% graduation rate, You're doing great. Here's a bonus, right? Here's some more funding for your students. And they say to the school that got the 40% graduation rate, uh, you're not doing so great. Um, We're going to decrease your funding a little bit compared to some of the other schools in the country, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so then that means that the school that gets the the 65% graduation rate that gets the bonus... Um, they're going to probably be able to pay better salaries, right? They've got that extra funds to be able to invest into making their university even better. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that may be, that may be fair and appropriate if, if the school with 65% graduation rate is just, is serving the same students as the other school and just doing a better job, Mm right? Right. But if those differences, if that 25% gap, that 65 versus 40% graduation rate, is mostly due to one college being located right next to a great K-12 through education program, and the other one being in a county where their students aren't ready to take freshman classes, and that's why a lot of them are dropping out, and to add just a bit more for how the policy affects things, we'll put a caveat on this in a moment, but if... The, so let's say there's a school that gets a graduation rate of 65%. We say, that's pretty good. Um, this college, we're going to give them some extra funding because they got all the way up to a 65% graduation rate. And another college is down at 40%. And we say, mm, we're not going to give them quite as much funding as some of the other schools because they're down at, at 40%. Um, that might be fair and that might be appropriate if the school if the college with 65% Um, was just doing a better job. They gave better instruction. They gave better counseling. They helped students figure out how to make college work while they're working a full-time job or whatever it is. Um, But if the difference between those two colleges is primarily in the students that they're serving, that maybe the school with the 65% graduation rate is located right next to a great high school um, that gets Mm -hmm. students ready for freshman year while the, the the college with 40% Percent graduation rate is next located next to a high school um, where that doesn't get students ready for college. Um, then what? That's just a slap in the face uh, to, to to a community that already um, is suffering under a a, a, a substandard um, education system, perhaps at the, at the K through twelve level. Um, and so, I think we have to be really careful in thinking about what are we rewarding. Are we giving people um, a bonus and and at the institutional level, right? Are we rewarding colleges that are doing well just because they happen to have a good student population coming in, or are we rewarding them because they're actually doing a good job with those students once they get there, a better job than other colleges once their students get there?
0: Yeah, because you could imagine schools gaming this, right? I mean, one way is to just exclude the less prepared students from access to education. And so if you were measured on graduation rates, for example, you might find it advantageous to just not provide education to the students who are going to struggle, for example. So I think there are some fairly clear um, secondary consequences or uh, maybe unintended consequences to treating these all the same, which you highlight in your op-ed. Um, so you've done a little bit of empirical work, uh, original empirical work on this topic. And one paper, um, that we talked to a little bit about that I thought might be interesting to highlight for the listeners is, uh, is a working paper. I believe it's still a working paper that's titled, will the tide lift all boats examining the equity effects of performance funding policies in us higher education? This is a co authored piece with Amanda Rutherford. Um, who's at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. And I know one of the things you find here is that um, um, you find some mixed evidence regarding whether performance funding policies uh, will improve outcomes for the most selective institutions while harming less competitive institutions. So the idea is that there's a chance that these policies will have just no effect on the less competitive institutions um, and – increase the uh, outcomes for the institutions that are already doing well because they have more, uh, even more uh, resources available. So maybe give me just a little bit about what you – I don't think there's a need to go into all the details about how you got there and the methods and the data and everything, but tell me kind of what you did and, and what you
1: found. Sure, sure. So in, in that paper, we try to, to zero in on um, sort of two potential effects that these policies could have. Um, so you mentioned the, the potential for gaming, right, that you might admit um, only students who are already likely to graduate, right, mm-hmm. into, into your university. And that's a really important concern. And there's actually quite a lit- bit of literature that's already paid attention to that. So we sort of set aside that concern and focus on two other potential effects. So the first effect we focus on um, is the effect that the, the policymakers makers Hope that these these policies will have, which is to cause institutions to make a stronger effort to improve their performance um, because of these policies, because Mm -hmm. of the incentives that these policies create. So um, we don't know how strong that effect would be, you know, without trying to look at some data. Um, On the one hand, a lot of universities and college administrators Probably even without these incentives, um, they're working at that college or university because they want to help prepare students to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so they might already be doing everything that they can to improve the educational experience of of their, their students. On the other hand... Um, It might be that having some financial incentives at the institutional level saying the college is going to get more money if you perform better on these metrics is going to give them a little bit more focus or a little bit more motivation to actually be innovative, perhaps, and come up with new strategies that might help students um, graduate on time, for example, um, it might push them to be a little bit more creative or to, or to try a little bit harder. So that's the first set of effects we focus on, is that there, there might be this improvement because of the, the incentives that exist when you attach money to how these, these organizations perform. The second effect, though, that we consider is um, a, what we call a distributional effect, so it's this idea that if we go back to that example of the college that graduates 65% and the college that graduates 40%, um, if we give more money to the college that graduates 65%, then that college can take that ex- those extra dollars and reinvest them in making their college experience even better, right? They can take that money and maybe they can hire better professors, right, increase salaries. Um, maybe they and hire additional counselors um, to help their students figure out how to navigate the process, figure out a major that they're excited about, and that's going to result in the kind of uh, work opportunities that they want, right? There's lots of ways that they could take that money and make the the experience for their undergraduate students even better than it already is. Mm -hmm. That school... That college that gets that 40% graduation rate and doesn't get as much funding, doesn't get those additional resources to try to make their college even better. And so um, we're concerned that that providing this extra money to the organizations that are performing well is going to make it so that we exacerbate the inequality that already exists that the the school with 40% might get worse or at least not get any better, and the school with that 65% graduation rate just sees their performance improve even more. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we combine these two effects, right, the the one which is changing the incentives, we would expect that to sort of improve improve everyone's performance, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're a poor performing school or a high performing school, to the extent that this effect exists, that administrators, once there's money on the line, start being more creative or trying harder to improve the educational experience. That's something that should apply to every institution. Um, But this distributional effect where the schools on top get more resources to reinvest in education, whereas the schools on bottom maybe see a decrease in resources or at least no improvement in resources, um, we would expect that to widen the disparity to make it so that the difference between the colleges at the top of the, the of the pile are farther from the colleges at the bottom of the pile um, if we didn't have these policies at all.
0: And so what what was the actual... Of the competing claims, what did you actually find?
1: Sure, sure. So, um, when we actually ran the data, um, we our results are a little bit preliminary still. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a, it's a bit of a, a difficult piece to estimate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to estimate empirically. Um, but we find some preliminary um, evidence, at least, um, that's consistent with the idea that. Um, schools that are already doing pretty well or that are um, already um, sort of classified as high-performing schools um, improve under these, these performance funding policies, um, whereas schools that are not as prestigious don't seem to see those same benefits from these policies, at least in some cases. But there's some mixed evidence, and it looks like there might be some differences based on whether or not we're looking at those. I, I talked earlier about performance-based funding 1.0 versus 2.0. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like there might be some differences depending on that and that um, that the the effects might not be the same, which makes sense because, because they're rather different policies. So um, we don't have a super... Consistent pattern from the data yet, mm-hmm. um, but but we 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 offer a, a, a model and a framework to, for exploring this um, that we think can can help move us forward um, as as we look at this question more.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to interesting to see as you focus more on this and more of the two efforts that are a little maybe more multidimensional, took in some feedback from the first sets, how they handle these distributional effects because it seems like more resources in general can be better and, some, and better, um, but if the only organizations getting those extra resources are the ones that are already performing well, that comes back to this equity concern about the ones doing well are serving different populations and the ones that um, often don't have as much resources. And so if we just keep giving more resources to the high performers, what does that mean about the equity mission of giving new opportunities to students that... Um, come from backgrounds where they didn't have those opportunities before. Um, yeah, yeah, and
1: just just to put this in a little bit of context, um, the amount of public funding for higher education um, per student has been decreasing pretty dramatically um, over the last uh, two or three decades, at least. Um, and part of the reason for that is that there are a lot more people going to college than did. 30, 40 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And so if a state keeps spending the same amount of dollars on higher education, now it's being spread across a lot more students. So that means that tuition has to cover a lot more of those expenses, um, and, and public dollars are, are are providing a lot smaller share of um, of money that goes towards people's education. So effectively, what that means for is that most institutions are seeing public support for the college decrease. They're seeing their funding levels decrease. Um, And so that's the environment in which this is taking place, is that most colleges are seeing a decrease in funding. And um, if you perform well on these metrics, then that might mean that you see a smaller decrease because you get some sort of bonus under these um, performance-based funding programs. Um, but, but most colleges are seeing a decrease in their overall level of funding, which I think is, um, is an important piece of, of trying to understand how, how these dynamics are, are perceived by, by the organizations.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the old mantra in, uh, in, I guess, in government funding of uh, doing more with less, um, I, I mean, at some point you reach a point to where you only everything you cut is essentially essential for the same type of mission you have. And just cutting the financial resources without kind of restructuring things, it doesn't seem like it's um, going to help with the performance piece of this puzzle. Um, so we're getting close on the hour mark, but I know um, as we talked about this and um, I've had some discussions about higher education, I know that, the, uh, uh, that there is some work being done uh, uh, in Congress right now in relation to funding for higher education. So, can you tell me a little bit about what is going on um, with the re- with the reauthorization and what impacts this might? What's what's kind of part of the policy discussion at this point?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, we're right in the midst of some some policy discussions in Congress, um, which. Haven't gotten a lot of attention because there's been so much else that Congress has been focused on and particularly um, Tax reform um, has been taking up a lot of this this space in in the news Um, But there was a bill to reauthorize the higher education act that was just introduced in the house um, This month and the Senate hasn't introduced a bill yet, um, but they're expected to do so I think in January most likely Um, but there are some important policy changes um, that are that are included in the, the House version of the bill, at least. Um, and a lot of them have to do with different ways that financial aid is handled um, and reducing the number of programs, trying to consolidate some, um, and then some things like making the FAFSA simpler and, um, and different things like that. Um, but one of the, the pieces that ties in really clearly to the discussion that we're having right now is a push um, to collect and disseminate data on um, performance in sort of a new way. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and, and, and specifically, uh, the House bill is, is requiring or um, proposing that we require reporting data on the earnings of graduates from different departments within colleges. Now, this data will be limited a little bit because they'll only collect this data for students who re- have received federal financial aid. So it won't be every student who graduated from a, a college or university, but it will be um, a lot of students. A lot of students receive some sort of you know, federal loan or, or, or something like that um, during the course of, of, of getting their their degree. And so any student who's done that, their earnings information will be added into this calculation for sort of what is the average earnings five years out or something like that for a student who graduates with a degree from this college and even more specifically from this department in
0: this uh, college. So it's a one, the piece that Kind of affects the conversation we've been having is thinking about new and different types of performance measures, one of them being the amount of income from the student as they leave. So this is again focused on the economic uh, outcomes of those that attend college.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and and a lot of people, I think, would argue that this measure is a little bit more informative than a lot of the ones that we have so far, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, a, a lot of what a student wants to know about a college is how much can they, ex- how much more are they going to make when they get their degree, right? And so, if they have some sort of indication of what are the typical earnings for someone who who goes to this college, um, that that might help them make a more informed decision. Um, But this also opens up the possibility, this is federal policy, and like I said, most of these performance-based funding policies are done at the state level, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But there's the potential that once this data is created, that states may decide to then use this data and incorporate it into their performance-based funding policies. So even though this won't directly affect or change any of the funding policies that exist right now um, at the state level, it, it opens up the possibility for, for those changes to come in the future.
0: Excellent. Well, I think that'll uh, – I, th- I believe this podcast is going to go out in about two or three days, so hopefully this will be pretty timely for uh, making people aware of the Higher Education Act and it going through the reauthorization process. Um, but uh, we're approaching the R, Mark, so let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. The, the thing I like to let guests do, Nathan, is just if you have a Twitter handle or uh, – a, uh, a personal website or any way in which people can follow your work uh, in the virtual space. I want to give you an opportunity to share that. Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, I'm Thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. Really happy to yeah. be able to talk Thanks about so my much. research. Um, if, if you're interested in learning more, uh, I, I link to everything from my personal webpage, which is NathanFavero.com. Um, that's Nathan, and then my last name is spelled F-A-V-E-R-O.com. com. Um, and then the other place I'm really active, there's a link to this from my page, but um, I'm on Twitter, and my handle is Favero underscore Nate.
0: All right, and you occasionally do op-eds for the Huffington Post as well, isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, and and there's, there's a link to that on my website.
0: Look at that, look at that, you're reading my mind. All right, sir. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, we'll have to find uh, an excuse to do it again in, uh, in the next season or maybe the following season.
1: Absolutely. I would love to.
0: Thanks, bud. Take care. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to take one final opportunity to thank you for following along with season one. This has been a lot of fun for me. It's been really enjoyable to talk with colleagues and friends about the work they do and to share it with you. Um, I hope that you follow us along into season two. Season two, again, will start in February. And in the meantime, I hope you join us for Public Problems 101, a virtual learning experience through Google Classroom. Uh, Feel free to register for that. Check it out on our Facebook page and in the link to the description of this episode. Um, We're looking forward to season two and wish you all the best in the meantime. Take care.